Every one of us is, in the cosmic perspective, precious. If a human disagrees with you, let him live. In a hundred billion galaxies, you will not find another. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Sagan. Matt, did you like my? I know that you've got a good impression of Sagan, but how did you like mine? It was very good. You've got to go slightly Kermit the Frog. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I'll work on it in the coming weeks. I can sometimes do it if I've been doing it for about like 20 minutes, but let's not waste 20 minutes of the listener's time. (laughs) We won't put you through that, listeners. Uh, So we've got a happy birthday off the bat. 70th birthday for Joseph Jean-Pierre Marc Garneau. JJPMG. I should imagine that uh, Canadian listeners, of which I know we have many, will be very <laughs> well, familiar we've, we've with We've definitely it. got one. We've definitely got one. <laughs> Hi, Jake. Hi, Jake. Born on February the 23rd, 1949, making him 70. Happy birthday, Joseph. He's flown on three space shuttles, 84, 96 and 2000. And he's currently the Minister of Transport in Canada. That is super cool. I wish we had an astronaut in Parliament. Well, Matt, he was the president of the Canadian Space Agency from 2001 to 2006. Legend. Tick. Jealous of Canada having a a literally a bona fide astronaut. We need more of them. Good luck to the Kelly. To the people of Belfast, our friends in Belfast, of which we have many. They're able to go and see uh, Tim Peake's Soyuz TMA-19M capsule. That took him okay. back from the International Space Station a couple of years ago, and it's gone to the Ulster Transport Museum. So go check it out. Belfast friends, please go and check it out. We've seen this, haven't we, Matt? And it's fantastic. Oh, yeah, man. It's always worth looking at it, particularly because you see all that charring on the outside, yeah, and you, it's that's been through love. the fiery furnace of re-entry. It's been through the seventh gate of hell. It's so visceral. So really it's is. going so fast that it's burning with the friction of the upper atmosphere. How fast was it going, Matt? How fast oh, was the Tim Peak in capsule? 28,000 miles an hour. Definitely quick. So um, <laughs> I-, I tell you what, Matt, we can't leave this episode without mentioning Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. Who currently have just scrubbed an attempt to fly VSS Unity back into space. But it looks like they'll try again today. Good luck, Virgin. One step even closer to Richard Branson going into space probably this year. I watched a three-minute documentary on what a day in the life of being on Necker Island with Richard Branson is like. Was it fun Um, or was it unbearably annoying? Unbearably fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it was it was in equal parts. Oh, that looks great, and an equal part. Oh, it's annoying, you know. Mm. But anyway, I wish them all the best for this. I've got a flat Earth story. Oh, I tried to watch. I called you, didn't I, last night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I try. I got through about ten to fifteen minutes of um, around the curve, which is a Netflix flat Earth documentary. 
I just got too angry. I, I was just shouting at the telly, Matt. Well, yeah, I don't know why you do it to yourself. It's just so ridiculous. I know. It's annoyed Malaysia's Federal Territories Mufti, a bloke called Datuk Sulkifli Mohammed Al-Bakri. Wow. And he says he's been, his office has been bombarded with queries from the public about Earth's shape. And he's criticising the cancerous spread of flat earth conspiracy theory. Uh, he said, look, all the scholars, Muslim scholars, agree that the earth is round. These theories have been confirmed by Malaysia's first astronaut, Dr. Sheikh Mustafa Shuka Sheikh Mustafa, who went to space in 2007. This is what you have to believe, isn't it? You have to believe that all of the people that have been in space, worked in space, talk about space, are, are, are lying. And as we learnt, Matt, the more people who try to hide a conspiracy, the more chances of it leaking and coming out. And it hasn't, has it? Well, no, it's, it's totally ridiculous. I'm, my space word of the week really should have done it in for Flat Earth. Mm. It's quite, quite simply preposterous. A quick little story that I saw in the in the um, news this week oh yeah was how uh, a, a chap called dr jeffrey johnson a researcher at the university of florida has been looking into what kind of mix of astronauts you need on a long-term term mars mission oh okay and the reason and a reason why i liked it i liked the answer was because it gives us to a little bit of a chance jamie oh my god i'm tingling carry on yeah because apparently these groups work best when they have somebody who takes on the role of class clown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there's me thinking you were going to say award-winning journalism. No, but no. <laughs> class clown. No, class clown. Yes, uh, they need a Mars mission will need someone who can break the tension and can bring people together. That's us, there we surely. Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Matt, uh, if we can break, we, we can't break records, but God damn, can we break tension? Absolutely. Um, Europe's Columbus Laboratory. Oh, that guy. Has entered its 11 year in space okay. on, on, as part of the ISS. Well, congratulations. We stood in the mock-up when we went to STEC. That was really fun. I want to go back. Well, well, we should do it this year. We should do STEC this year, shouldn't we? Yeah. Big news in rocket stuff, though. SpaceX, as predicted, I think, uh, have filed an official protest with the US government about NASA's award to ULA for the uh, contract to take Lucy, the NASA probe that's going to look into um, the asteroids that cluster around Jupiter. Okay. So I think it's, it's a Trojan mission, isn't it, the Lucy? Yeah. Yeah, they wanted, obviously, it's such an expensive and important mission that they wanted something really reliable. That was the excuse. But SpaceX are saying, well, hang on a second, we're reliable, but we're also considerably cheaper. So you shouldn't be wasting taxpayers' money. Hmm. You should, we, should have, we should have at least had the chance to kind of get our bid in. Here, here. It's getting a bit fraught, isn't it, with SpaceX at the moment? Their sort of military thing with their with their launch on Falcon Heavy's being looked into. Mm. Well, we, let's move on from SpaceX. Yeah, they're, they're just a fraught time. A new moon discovered around Neptune. This is exciting, isn't it? Because I mean, how beautiful is Neptune, Matt? Do you know we should do a Neptune special? Because I know very little about Neptune. I do as well. I we really do need to do a special on it. Um. This is very cool. So tracking the seventh and smallest inner moon 
since it was spotted in pictures from the 2013 Hubble telescope. Yeah, so a guy called it, Mark Showalter from the SETI Institute uh, has written up the results in Nature, just come out, uh, and, it, and it includes observations of Naiad, Neptune's innermost moon, which was last seen in 1989. Ah. So, yes, basically this report says that Hippocamp orbits close to Proteus, the outermost of the largest of the inner moons, and the orbital semi-major axis of the two moons differs by only 10%. Proteus has migrated outwards because of the tidal interactions with Neptune. Results suggest that Hippocamp is probably an ancient fragment of Proteus, which is providing further support for the hypothesis that the inner Neptune system has been shaped by numerous impacts. Uh, should we talk about the name Hippocamp, or should we just leave that? Hippocamp, yes, it's a great name, isn't it? It just makes me think of a really happy African safari. Hippo is Greek for horse. Oh. Campos is Greek for sea monster. So it's a sea sea monster, a seahorse. Uh, greetings, Hippocamp. I mean, I know that you wanted to mention Elon, what Elon Musk's been up to. Drink, drink. My kids will be are so, are so obsessed with this. I had to look up who who he was. Are you joking? Turns out, turns out he's got quite a bit of following on YouTube. And you and you know he lives right near near you, don't you? Does he? He's a Brighton boy. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, it's the biggest thing on YouTube. There's T Series, which is some Indian commercial YouTube channel that is approaching his subscription. He's got various celebrities to to sort of help him out to keep him uh, you know above T series and it's become a real thing amongst the ute. Right. And uh, his latest person who he's got in to help him is Elon Musk to do his crazily popular meme review. Elon Musk reviews a meme. Yeah. And he's going to do it on on PewDiePie's on channel. PewDiePie's channel. Okay. If you're unaware of memes, PewDiePie, T-Series, you'll have so much cultural catching up to do that you won't understand <laughs> what the hell's going on if you watch it. Yeah. It's, it's just absurd. It's just how ridiculous. How do we translate? I mean, that yeah. just shows how old I am, Matt, now. I just didn't, I didn't know who he was. I thought you'd be yeah. all over that. I thought he was no. going to be. I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to tell me how you go drinking with PewDiePie down the, down the pub. Matt, you know all I look up on YouTube is flat earth conspiracies <laughs> and then get angry. That's all I do. Yeah, and then can't sleep. So let's move on. Let's talk about harpoon experiments. Big shout out to the Guildford Massif. Uh, removed debris, which has again, for its third experiment, been totally successful in this time harpooning a target 1.5 metres away. Yes, it's it's a massive consortium of companies that are trying to solve the problem of space debris. You've got the Surrey Space Centre in Guildford. You've got Ariane Group in France. Yeah. You've got Surrey Satellites in Guildford. You've got Airbus, whose harpoon it was. You've got Airbus, the German Airbus that built the net. Uh -huh. And you've got a couple of Swiss and French uh, companies who who did the sort of vision-based navigation. You've got Dutch companies that have built the CubeSat dispensers, and the target CubeSats were built by S the Surrey Space Centre and a South African university. And the final experiment will be a drag sail that will that will kind of drag the uh, debris back into burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. And that has been built by the Surrey Space Centre. 
I love things like this. Like, do you remember that one that uh, that I think it was a teenager that made the? It's like an ocean one that was trying to collect plastic. It was amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. So cool. Well, good luck. Good luck, everyone. But Matt, three hundred thousand new galaxies have been discovered by the LOFAR. We've talked about this before. It's the Low Frequency Array Telescope, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is based in the Netherlands. And Matt, check this. You know, I know you love a stat. Well, the data that's gathered from this is the equivalent to 10 million DVDs. <laughs> and that's only 2% of our observable sky. What do you think about is, that? Is that Blu-ray DVD or normal DVD? You know what? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, let's just say it's Blu-ray. Yeah. So this data likely to be researched for black holes got some cool quotes if you would if you would like them we've got according to netherlands institute for radio astronomy researcher timothy shimwell um he says we've been working together with surf in the netherlands to efficiently transform the massive amounts of data into high quality images these images are now public and will allow astronomers to study the evolution of galaxies in unprecedented detail If we take a radio telescope and we look up at the sky, we see mainly emission from the immediate environment of massive black holes. Uh, With LOFAR, we hope to answer the fascinating question, where do these black holes come from? What's brilliant about the data is that it allows astronomers to see, A, all these different black holes and where they are, which has, of course, led to them discovering all these hundreds of thousands of new galaxies that they didn't that you can't see in in yeah. the light but you can infer that they're there i think from the black holes that are there but they're also seeing it's not just uh black holes that are creating these radio signals but you're also getting um galaxies are shining in this in this uh, spectrum of light because of mm. of of movement of 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 gas within the galaxies as well, which which is helping them understand how the galaxies are forming and and are sort of pieced together. So it's really really interesting. And doesn't it make you just think how little we still know, considering that this is obviously just a drop in the ocean of what is the reality? Um, and there's another nice quote, Matt, from Director General Carol Jackson. Mm. This sky map will be a wonderfully scientific legacy for the future. It is testimony to the designers of LOFAR that the telescope performs so well. And she was talking about the fact that other people might want to use the images to support research on magnetic fields or the relationship between galaxies. I mean, yeah, list goes on. What's incredible is that this 300,000 galaxies that have been discovered, Uh this has been all cobbled together from about 26 research papers that have been Mm. uh, written recently from this data. And what's incredible is that that it's only the first 2% of the sky survey. So 26 papers with astonishing like findings, and that's from only the first 2% of the survey that it's done so far. Absolutely love that. So Matt, there's, I reckon that if we've got doppelgangers in other universes, sorry, in other galaxies, then there could be an extra 300,000 of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what's going to be interesting is that they're going to see things that are really important, like some of the early first black holes that started to form right at the beginning of the universe. So yeah, that's absolutely. that's going to that's going to be super exciting. Hey Matt, is that it's that time of week again? Yeah. 
Space word of the week! Space word of the week! A reason why I wanted to do this word, which is Coriolis, is because um, Bob Hodges uh, was insisting that I looked at the Gateway Foundation space station. So what Uh I'm going to do is is I'm going to do a bit more research and do Gateway Foundation next week. So, uh, But in the meantime, I thought Coriolis was a good thing to look at because uh, it's it's an effect that affects these spinning space stations. Hmm. And when you set, like, discs spinning, they have lots and lots of sort of counterintuitive effects. You know when you've got, like, a gyroscope and you spin yeah. it up? It just feels all wrong, doesn't it? All the sort of things that it does is really counterintuitive, the way that it spins on its axis and you get precession around it in a weird way that you wouldn't be expecting yeah. and all those sort of yeah, things. Absolutely. And a lot and a lot of these things are, are down to uh, centripetal and centrifugal forces and things like this. And now some of these forces are what's known as fictitious forces. So they, they don't really exist but they do have an effect. And in fact, gravity can be considered a fictitious force. What about the space force? Is that fictitious or real now? <laughs> it's no longer going to be its own thing, is it? That's a that's yeah. a good bit of space news there, Jamie, that you snuck you in. Yeah. It's, it's going to be part of the Air Force. It's not going to be its own division. Coriolis is, is an interesting part of this phenomena of all the weird things that happen when you've got spinning things. Uh-huh. Let's take the earth. Let's take it. Say you were standing on the equator directly okay. south of me in London, right? Yeah. So you're standing on the equator and you think, I'm just going to fire a rocket up at Matt. So you fire a rocket directly north. Now, yeah. the the weird thing is it wouldn't get to me. It would end up sort of in Paris or Berlin yeah. or somewhere like that. What's going on? Why Why doesn't it just go north? Well. Imagine you're standing about a metre away from the North Pole. I'm imagining it. It's cold. As the Earth rotates, in one day, you'll have done a, you'll have done a circle of one metre in radius. Agreed? Oh, agreed. Yeah, so you, you won't have gone very far in the rotation when you're standing near the North Pole. In, in other words, you could walk around that radius really, really easy. So you haven't travelled very far. So you're not going that fast. Whereas when you're standing on the equator, you're going a very long distance in one day. So, of course, you're traveling a lot faster at the equator. Agreed? I'm on board so far. So when you fire your rocket from the equator, it's got all that speed going in the direction of travel of the Mm. Earth's rotation. Well, it, it doesn't lose that speed. As the rocket's coming towards me in London... It's still got its eastward motion. Uh-huh. It veers off towards, yeah, to the east. Okay. Meaning it won't get to me. And that is the Coriolis effect, essentially. Wow. And it, and it affects all sorts of things. The big one, the big effect that it has is imagine you have a storm that's just started. Now, a storm cell is really an area of very, very low pressure. And mm. the wind, the air sort of, when you've got a vacuum, obviously everything rushes in to, to the centre yes. where that low low pressure is. Uh-huh. But if but if the air is rushing from south to north, then it's being deflected just like the rocket was. Uh, it's being deflected eastward. Now coming down the other way, it's doing the same thing. As a result, it actually starts to circulate the the air. 
if you think about the way that the air is oh, being yeah, yeah. bent. I'm with you. And that starts, that's why cyclones spin and hurricanes spin. It's because of the Coriolis effect. And, oh. and, and the brilliant part about it is if you're in the northern hemisphere, they spin anti-clockwise. Yeah. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, they spin uh, clockwise because of the Coriolis effect. And it's really, really intuitive once you get your head around the Coriolis effect. What about toilet water going the wrong way? Or is that a myth? It's actually a myth. I'm glad you brought that up, but it's a myth. Yeah, the, oh. it, it, it was always said that Coriolis was the, that's what, what was causing it. But it's pretty much, if you do it, it's 50-50 going to go either way. And it's much more to do with the imperfections of the, your actual drain and yeah. and the way that the water first starts to go down the drain. It, the Coriolis effect on, on a water in a sink or in a bath is just far too weak to actually create that, yeah, that spinning, uh, spinning anti-clockwise or clockwise. It's a myth. It, that is an urban myth. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a nice one. Yeah. And of course the Coriolis effects actually takes, um, hurricanes and cyclones away from the equator as well. So you can't have hurricanes and tornadoes along the equator. So, yeah, which is one of the reasons. It pretty much, the fact that that storms do this is essentially yet one massive piece of evidence that the Earth is a globe. As if we needed more (laughs) evidence. But there we go. It's, yes, I know, but Coriolis. But there's a really there's a similar effect called the Oishvosh effect. Oich, yeah. Oitvosh, spelt E O umlaut T V O umlaut S. Oitvosh effect, and it's pretty similar. And it's actually a component of the Coriolis effect. Coriolis effect. So if you're in a train traveling west on the equator, hmm. the train would actually get heavier. And again, this is to do with the centrifugal uh, fictitious force. Uh-huh. The speed of the train is going against the spin of the Earth. Yeah. And so it actually feels heavier because it's no longer got this component of centrifugal force that's kind of lifting the train a little bit. You know, when yeah. you spin, if you spin a child in a circle on the beach, you can feel yeah. their, you feel them pulling away from you. And the faster you spin, the more they pull away from you. Sure. And that and that perceived force in there in your arms is called the centrifugal force. It doesn't really exist. It's really their inertial force trying to go off in a straight line all the time. Stop spinning kids around on a beach though, Matt, please. You'll get in trouble again. So westward traveling objects are heavier and eastward traveling objects are lighter. And so when you're launching rockets going east from the equator, of course, is an extremely good idea because not not only you're getting the spin of the Earth to get to um, orbital speed, but you're also actually uh, lighter as well oh, because of the I love because of, because of the Oishvoish effect. Oishvoish, yeah, I love that. Named after Baron Roland von Oishvoish. Oh yes, Baron Roland, it's me. Thanks to Bob, I've been looking into this because basically, Cheers, Bob. In a small space station, when you've got this spinning, you know, the classic spinning Von Braun space station, mm. uh, like 2001 Space Odyssey, the Coriolis effect becomes a very significant downside of how big and how small you can have these things without feeling this effect. Because your head, of course, uh, is going slower than your feet. 
and so when you turn your head you get this weird pull on your head and it's all and so you get pulled to one side which is what would happen to the runner in 2001 space odyssey who'd actually get pulled to one side due to the coriolis effect pulled to one side would make a good song wouldn't it yeah well it's it's part of my new solo album pull to one side Pulled to one side, I've been pulled to one side on my space station. Stop impersonating <laughs> Bowie. I'm not, I'm not impersonating, that's just my singing voice. Yeah, okay. What have you got to tell me about? Well, I have been looking online and mm-hmm. I found this great story about a wonderful lady called Doreen Boyd, who happens to be the director of data um, at Wrights Lab. And she's been helping uh, track down slave labor camps in Asia. And she's been doing this via satellite imagery, a satellite image from 2017 of Rajasthan state in India showed a brown oval that looked like a dusty high school track. But actually, it was a brick kiln. And it turns out that it's one of 10,000 or or one of 10,000 across uh, Southeast Asia that are often run on forced labour. What she did is she, you know, realised that such imagery could help track down others. And so she set up an algorithm within these satellites that are mapping terrain every day uh, to to be able to notice them and also fisheries uh, that employ forced labour. And absolutely incredible. There's another company called Planet, uh, that has 150 low Earth orbit satellites that gra- that gather thousands of Earth images daily that are inputting the data for this. So this week at a conference in New York City, sponsored by the United Nations University, computer sciences, slavery experts and policy strategists presented the latest efforts in their fields and brainstormed ways to work together. We're doing team science says Austin Choi Fitzpatrick, an expert in peace studies at the University of San Diego in California, uh, who's been interviewing slaveholders at kiln sites like those seen by Wright's lab uh, to study from space. Uh, Absolutely amazing. But yeah, some terrible stats. Some 40.3 million people are held in bondage today, according to the latest estimates from the International Labour Organization. Um, based in Switzerland, it's not good, is it? There's more people who are slaves today than the, the, than any other time in history. So, what fantastic work! Oh, I'm going to come come from this from a different angle, Jamie, because there, yeah, there, okay. uh, there, there's a guy called Andrew Zolly who was the head of social initiatives at Planet Labs. Yeah, the thrust of the Reuters article that I saw was that he was sort of saying that new technologies, including you know complex cryptocurrencies like your bitcoins mm. etc and mobile apps all those sort of things are fueling the modern slave trade and so he wanted to come up with a way of yeah of of saying well we're going to use modern super modern technology to kind of stem the tide of this and uh, yes this this ai thing is is an incredible weapon in trying to stop this because yeah united nations have set a goal by 2030 for ending forced labor and modern slavery worldwide. So they're going to have to they're going to have to step it up, aren't they? If they're going to if they're going to reduce it by 40 million people, have got to be taken out of slavery in a decade. It's a good target, and um, I think you know everyone should do their bit. This is fantastic work. So big ups to Wright's Lab and Planet. Yeah, well, I mean that's a, it, that answers quite a few people that 
uh, don't understand why we spend money on space. And this is, this is exactly why we... It's not just growing plants on the moon. It is about some really very cool stuff. I think we should try and get Doreen on the show. Oh, absolutely. That'd be absolutely amazing to have someone like that on the show. But in the meantime, uh, I know that you're obsessed with Bershit. Yeah. Um, should we talk about that? Oh, absolutely. So this is the week, as predicted in the uh, podcast review of the year, Bershit is going to be launching to the moon this week uh, as part of a ride-sharing Falcon 9 launch from Cape Canaveral. One forty-five Friday, Greenwich Mean Time, in the morning. So hopefully by the time this show goes out, everyone uh, will uh, have seen this thing take off. So it's a washing machine-sized lander. A 585 kilograms, most of it fuel, uh, mm. and it's and what it's going to do is it's going to orbit the Earth uh, for a bit, and every time it orbits the Earth, it's going to be enlarging its orbit in an elliptical way, so that after a while, that elliptical orbit will intercept the Moon, and that's going to happen about fourth of April, and then it's going to circularize that orbit and then shrink its orbit around the moon and hopefully land by the 11th of April, totally autonomously onto 3D printed landing legs. That is exciting. I actually mean additive manufacturing, of course. Well, of course you do. But but that's it now. 3D printing is what it's called, and we can't do much else about it. So that total journey, despite the moon only being a quarter of a million miles away, will be 5.6 million miles but of course the way that it's done using these orbits actually saves fuel rather than costing loads more fuel Hmm. and talking of fuel the the rocket engine that's going to be doing this is actually built by namo in westcott which is of course in the uk and it's called the leros l-e-r-o-s engine What's really weird is the team leader of this Leros engine it is a guy called Rob Westcott. So he's he's got the same surname as the town that uh, Namo are based in. So it's a little bit confusing when you're reading the uh, Westcott said, what the whole town. Anyway, usually designed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's usually designed this uh, Leros engine because it's it's used by geostationary satellites to get up into orbit, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's usually has very very long burns with very very long shutdowns. So each time the burn happens, it's normally on a cold engine. So they've had to adapt this one and give it a shorter nozzle and larger thrust because obviously it's going a lot further out. Uh, mm. But it but it's got, it's got to do lots of hot restarts. So by the time it's restarted again, the it won't the engine won't have had time to cool down. So that's going to be really interesting. But the Leros is going to be doing everything. So it's going to be doing the the orbit, the landing, and also a planned five hundred meter hop once it's actually on the moon. Uh, and it's going to be landing in the Mare Serenitatis. My favourite part. The reason why it's going to do this jump is because it's going to be measuring magnetic fields using an instrument supplied by the University of California. And it wants to do it in two different places because there is weird magnetic stuff going on in that part of the moon. I like that. I like, I like the quote from Morris Kahn. Oh, it's South ace, African-born entrepreneur and billionaire who lives in Israel. He's the 43% funder. 
Now check this one out, Matt. He said, I don't want to be the richest man in the cemetery. Should we ask him if he can give us some money on Patreon? When Better Shit was first being built, it was being built for the Google Lunar X Prize that finished last year with no winner. Um, mm. So it's come out of that competition, but they needed some money at the beginning. And they went to Morris Khan and, and said, oh, can you lend us a bit of money? He said, well, give us a budget then. And they came back with something that was actually quite unrealistic. So he's been funding it ever since. I think he was in it for about... 10 million at the start and he's ended up having to put 43 million in um so yeah the, the figures are he originally the budget was a sort of five million for the launch on spacex but they reckon it probably cost more like 22.5 to get this ride share got it which which i think is pretty cheap but it's um it's still a lot of money obviously and there was a research budget of about eight million the government I love that kind of research budget yeah the israeli government gave him a couple of mil and uh, so it's all, all in all, it's cost $100 million, which compared to the $3.5 billion that NASA spent in the 60s on the surveyor lunar landers means yeah, that... it's not bad. It's not... Well, yeah, there were seven surveyor lunar landers, so that works out that it's roughly five times cheaper than the surveyor. So that, so Israel... That works. So they've done an incredible job, Space IL, to, to actually get this that cheap. So good work. It really is good work. So the robot's only going to operate for a couple of days until it overheats. Actually, if you think about how brilliant Israel has been, that it's got a population smaller than London. So that's less than 8 million people live in Israel and they've managed to do something as technologically advanced as this is absolutely testament to their fantastic education programs and their embracement of science well done israel that is fantastic well i just think it's one of the most important space missions uh for a very long time you, you bear in mind only government space agencies have done this so only us russia and china have managed this feat japan india and europe have all crashed probes but not actually mm. gently set down so if if by April the 11th, they managed to actually do this. I think this will be even more incredible than the Chinese Shanghai 4 mission. Well, I agree. There's definitely less people in Israel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Just a bit. Now, Matt, let's go to listener letters. Listener yes. letters of the week. Yes, we had a couple, a couple of good ones. So Michael Richardson, uh -huh. he thought it was funny when in the Stephen Ringler episode that we were surprised that he was a musician he says surely buckaroo banzai has demonstrated that you can't be good at space science unless you are also in a band <laughs> there we go <laughs> so i must go see buckaroo banzai definitely and also jamie uh, someone pointed out the uh, remember we were talking and i pointed out the the venus tweet that had been yeah. made about a global warming and, uh, well, Venus is still there and that's got a runaway uh, greenhouse effect. Oh, it's, yeah. Yeah, remember that one. It was, it. the tweet was made by Steve, Steve Milloy, oh, not, Steve. By, not by Congressman Peter DeFazio. So Peter DeFazio, oh. turns out, is a super good guy. That guy's been out there uh, really spreading the word oh, and, no way. Uh, and and trying to combat climate change. Uh, and so big up Pete DeFazio. We're very, very sorry. Well, 
I'm so sorry, Peter. Uh, absolutely, hands up. My bad. Read it wrong. But Steve Milloy. But Steve Milloy. Absolutely everything I detest <laughs> about someone who's out there spreading basically very, very cynical fake news because he's paid to do so. He's now taken the prize bellend award. Um, very sorry again, Peter DeFazio. Uh, my my mistake. Thank you to Ryan Reynolds, not that one, uh, for for letting us know. Jamie, it's that time where we have David Baker on for our monthly oh, chat. Yes. I've been looking forward to this. Let's go. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Well, it, it, it seems that we, we really had a tremendous start to the new year with an extraordinary first attempt to put a lander down on the far side of the moon. And I, I think the significance of this is really quite profound, but perhaps not in the way it's generally been hailed as a moon race. Um, I think if there's any race associated with this, it's, it's much more down to the old tenets of a space race, because I think there's going to be a certain amount of spiky interest among other countries, but I'm not quite so sure it's going to affect very much what's happening in the United States, contrary to what a lot of people say. And what, um, what makes you say that? What, what, what do you think is going to be happening in the United States? What's, what's the main driver there? Well, I think the trigger for previous activities in the space program in the United States really were locked into the first decade of the space age from late 50s to late 60s. And from that point on, really, it's been a very pragmatic consequence of what NASA can get in the way of budgets. Uh, latterly, in the last decade, essentially, what the commercial providers can pay for. Um, it's it's much more down to a business as usual continuing to to uh, develop right across the spectrum of planetary, astrophysical, space science, uh, Earth resources, and human spaceflight capabilities. I just don't see the flexibility in the American programs now that there was in the first quarter of the space age. And therefore, I think that there is this profound feeling in the United States that that really, as they are already funding nearly half of the world's expenditure on space exploration, um, that they've really they've really got it there in terms of where they want to be, and and that the budget's going nowhere. It's certainly not increasing, um, and there's continuous threats from all fronts with regard to to expenditure on what exists already. Not least Congress being very aware of the criticism in the media at large um, about the national space projects, big ticket projects such as uh, um, Orion and the Space Launch System, and even the James Webb Space Telescope now coming under fire with regard to this this very significant delay to to the flight and and the soaring cost of the of the project itself but i do see that that other countries and particularly india are going to take serious note of this and i think i think the real running is going to be between india and china i really really do because i think they are contesting the same market niche um which is to develop programs 
in my view, which is just a personal opinion mm. based on, on, on what I've seen in the past and what I'm seeing now, is, is that a, a lot is accruing of a propaganda and a political credibility behind space projects. And, and it's still amazing, isn't it, that, that space projects still, still seem to, to empower nations in their technological virility symbols, just as it did in the days of Sputnik. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really way, good way of putting it. Yeah, it, it, I have to say that I've been kind of toying with that idea in my head of of things like the SLS Orion and the and um, and the Lunar Gateway in particular. Uh, they really aren't the kind of projects I think in the long term that are that inspirational uh, in terms of they. they <laughs> They, I, I don't know what their driver is, but the driver can't mm. be to wow the public mm. or, or wow because you know it. it it's yeah. definitely better to put boots on the moon rather yeah. than boots in orbit around the moon. It just feels, especially considering the Americans have already done it fifty years ago. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. so they, we, we, I really like that idea that I suppose yeah, China and India are going to be taking up these projects that are going to be have much more of a public wow factor. Mm. Is that what you're saying? Mm. Mm. Yes, yes, I am absolutely, and I think that uh, you say boots on on the moon would do it. Well, I think it, even platforms and wheels, as the Chinese have shown, yeah. um, really got the media humming and buzzing all around the world. And and I'm sure all of us who are involved in communicating the space program to to a broad audience um, were absolutely plagued over the success of Changi Four and the landing on the far side. And I was doing um, talks for stations in India, Hong Kong. Um, it really gripped people's imagination. I, I think, uh, I think almost in a way, robots have have trumped humans yeah. <laughs> because human spaceflight is so expensive, it's so protracted, it takes so long to get anything done, and particularly in this very risk-averse world in which we live. When you consider that it was, it was just. 12 years from Sputnik 1 to walking around on the moon. And, and here, you know, that's, that's less, less time than we've been talking and expecting the Space Launch System and its precursor Ares under the Constellation Program. We just can't get things done anymore in the way that, that hungry nations wanting, wanting the world to watch them, wanting a political propaganda, um, which is common to all countries who want to improve their acceptability on the world stage and space is still on that front line although i do feel it's a complex mix that china is in it for the long haul and it's interesting that they are putting so much emphasis now onto these unmanned robotic um activities actually on the surface of the moon i think that resonates with people mm. i think short of, of of walking around on 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 the plains of of, of mars um I, I don't think it would really grip the imagination of the public um, in the way we might expect that, that it would. But, but people are fascinated by these machines which are doing things for us that we have built, that we have programmed, and that we are essentially taking complex problems and finding solutions that embrace more the robotic side than... The, the human side, but but you refer to where to go to to the space launch system, Orion Gateway. No, that's not inspirational. And I think the cynic in me would say that that really is driven by by an almost subconscious 
um, don't touch it imperative to keep going with human spaceflight mm. in the United States. And, and they've just got to find a reason for developing projects that had no mission in view when they were initially approved and funded. Space launch system, a classic example. How many mission um, objectives has it been given by the NASA PR teams? Mars, asteroids, all oh, now the gateway around the moon, you, you know. Um, it, it's really a pretty sad reflection on a total lack of coherent forward thinking. And I think we've we've talked about that before, yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got a couple of space geek friends who um, basically sum it up as the, the only good thing that they can see with SLS Lunar Gateway is that is the space mission that's going to get funded. As in, <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, at least we've got something funded. So yeah. it's, it, yeah. I, that's a bit depressing. Uh, the, the other thing that I thought was worth mentioning is that um, uh, I had a chat with um, uh, Gurbir Singh, I know you know right. him well, and yeah, yeah. Uh, he, um, I think he was kind of intimating that the Indian human spaceflight program mm. was was to the detriment of the entire Indian space program. Yes. in in yes. his opinion. Yes. So yeah, maybe people getting bogged down. But I, I must admit, I, I, I disagree slightly with that assessment of human uh, humans mm. landing. On, on various <laughs> bodies in the solar system. I think if we'd had Chinese boots on the moon, the story mm. would have been even more incredible than the uh, Chang'e 4. Yeah. I think, I think, I think yeah. <laughs> it, would, it would be yeah. the biggest news story of the year by far, wouldn't it? Oh, I think it would, yes. And, and let's keep that, that interpretation in perspective. I think um, I would certainly feel that, that humans doing things in space are by far the most news-gripping and, and connecting node of, of interface between our present and the future. Um, and I think people would recognize that as such. But I just feel that, that really, um, just as at, at, at the heyday of Apollo, it's so very easy to talk to ourselves about these issues. And, and right at the time of Apollo, the majority of Americans were against the moon landing program. And, and that's so difficult to grasp. And I think so many connections with that um, feed right in to an interpretation that essentially the American public lost the plot with regard to what Apollo was all about. And I think this is, this is <laughs> if I may, morph it over in that phrase mm. by really in this 50th anniversary of the first landing on the moon, I've been... I've been in, in, involved and still am in, in a huge number of things, of talks, of presentations, of of books um, regarding those events 50 years ago. And I'm revisiting in my own awareness the thoughts that existed at the time about what Apollo was. And I see two very, very distinct worlds coexisting physically on this planet. There was the world that thought, we were all part of that in the program, that thought Apollo was not about that first landing, but was about the extended exploration of the lunar surface. And that's why right up until really six months before the flight, when there was a rapid turnaround in terms of the awareness of how long we were going to be able to keep going to the moon, um, it, it, it was a shock, a deep, deeply felt shock that the whole program was coming to an end and the awareness that the entire space program was going to be reinvented along a completely different 
different set of connections based on this on the shuttle program when when we thought oh shuttle and station right well that's going back to the old von Braun um uh view that that you build space stations then you build colonies out on other worlds and gradually populate the solar system and of course the kennedy decision to turn it in into a political goal uh, wrenched that that um that game plan away from NASA, which it was in which it was developing, and of course Apollo was developed as that initial foray out from Earth orbit to circumlunar orbit by the end of the sixties, and then sometime in the seventies would come a landing. All that Kennedy did in terms of changing the program was to pull up faster the time when Apollo put humans on the moon, but strategically it significantly wrenched from the space program the long-term objective which would have it unfolding across successive presidential eras and this is the big problem that it seems the american government cannot approve anything that doesn't really happen within the term of its own of its own political um remit and and so looking at those gaps and and examining how the apollo program appeared i mean we're coming up in March to the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 9. And and that really was one of the most significant missions in the whole of the pre-landing phase. And and, and, and it's really dismissed to a great extent as being, oh, oh well, it was just a, a rehearsal. Well, in actual fact, it was it was as as important in the preparation for that landing in the July as the first flight of a Saturn V and the first manned flight of an Apollo spacecraft, because it was the first flight with astronauts aboard of the lunar module. And if that had had suffered in any way at all, then that would have been curtains in terms of expectations of getting on the moon by the end of the 1960s. But following on with that, and it's it's almost something that I, I had to revisit myself in, in writing all these books I've done for the 50th anniversary, Three this year, Matt, hitting the book courtesy <laughs> of, of yours truly. Uh, there's never been a surge time in the media and, and across the, that I have seen of this 50th, and I, I underestimated the, the impact of expectation it would have. But coming up to that first landing, we never really thought of the first landing as, as the real start of what Apollo was all about. It was the last of the big engineering qualification flights. And the fact that if you stepped over into the political arena and the global media arena, oh, wow, it was a big culmination of what Apollo was all about. Well, in actual fact, it was only the culmination of a political goal. But underpinning that, in terms of the engineering and the development, Apollo 9 was felt to be by far the more important since Apollo 7 and since Apollo 4, the first Saturn V flight. And the landing was merely the last of the engineering verification performances where you slotted in demonstration that you were ready to start the Apollo program, which began with Apollo 12, with pinpoint landings, with two EVAs on the surface. And there was such nervousness about Apollo 11 that whole tranches of that mission were pulled out sequentially right up to the last few weeks before the flight. It was very last minute to pull the ALSEP experiments, that big array of experiments left by every flight after 11, powered by a plutonium nuclear fuel source to keep 
the instruments working in a data station transmitting to Earth information from all of those experiments on the surface for years after the crews returned. Apollo 11, we felt internally within the program, and I, and I felt it much, much more closely in revisiting and going back into the archives, looking at my notes from the day and everything. And, and yes, it was a great political nod to, OK, guys, here you are, world. You've got your big first of boots on the moon, but the real program is going to start when we can begin to exploit and develop that spacecraft. And Grumman was, was given the go-ahead. And Boeing was given the go-ahead to produce the lunar roving vehicle within a very short period of the first landing on the moon because we realized it was all that we were going to get, those remaining flights as the hardware ran out. So looking at how the, the global impact of boots on other worlds, yeah. it's a very short-lived thing. And, and the real message never you know, seems to get folded in to the public psyche that this is a long-term exploration program. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really fascinating that some of the rocks, for example, that Apollo 14 brought back are in the news again because uh-huh, they've, yes. they, fa- they found bits of the Earth in there. <laughs> so yeah. so yeah. some poor rocks travelled. In fact, it might even be the oldest known Earth rock that Edgar yeah. Mitchell picked off the surface of the moon, which I think is quite yeah. amazing. And, and, of course, it's, it's still bringing science dividends to this day so i guess well that's... i'm a great yeah i'm a great advocate of, of human lunar exploration but i think going back to connecting this with the gateway and the station i think it's it's i think we must recognize the elephant in the room which is the fact that the united states civilian space budget the nasa space budget is insufficient for it to do the things it would like to do and so it is totally constrained by what it can afford under a flat-lined budget. Sometimes a budget which isn't even keeping pace with inflation. Hmm. And that is one of the problems. And the fact that it needs international cooperation in order to be the team leader, but not the sole provider. And that, that is the real problem. That amidst all these technical and wish list options that we can all write up, um, at the end of the day, it's going to be what what NASA can afford, and here we are talking about NASA as against the military side, um, and, and, and this is the problem, the fact that it's got intact a group of partners that cannot progress in these heady fashions without a team leader such as the United States and NASA. Um, and, and so it is in their interest, in, in the Canadians, certainly the Russians and the Europeans, who are fully committed in other sectors, locked in now to this, this, this partnership, and the Japanese too, um, that essentially the next go-to goal has to take all that partnership along. And, and it's become, it, it's encroached even further onto the, onto the made-in-the-USA preserve, as we've mentioned before, the fact that half of the Orion spacecraft is built in Europe the service module, which arguably is 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 <laughs> the most important, um, so so essentially it's it's locked down in into what NASA can afford because it cannot get more money from Congress. I can't imagine seeing American boots on the moon anytime soon, or or, or European boots on the moon anytime soon. I, I I can't help feeling that it's going to be Chinese or Indian boots on there first next. I think I think you're right. I think. 
China is certainly, uh, in my view, it's, it's certainly the lead runner on that. It's going to be a long time because, of course, they've had delays with, with their big launch vehicle. And, uh, and in fact, uh, they've put out or put back to the 2030s, the time uh, when, when they will expect to get humans on the surface of, uh, of, of the moon, which, which they have professed is exactly where they're aiming to be. But but I think this uh, this effect of uh, of um, having to bridge the gap between where they are now and where they are going to have to be technologically, um, in a way, it's 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 caught by its own in, in, in that French term, it's hoisted by its own petard. Yeah. Because because the gap, the expectations really that they are encouraging are beyond their grasp for at least the next 15 years. And, and I think that, uh, I think by which time, if the gateway does proceed as, as we expect it will, um, it's, it's really parking the objectives on one side. I, I sense that's what you felt, that the gateway is really parking the, the future on one side and well, okay, we'll get on with this because it's, it's, it's ISS, Mark II, but around the moon, <laughs> but actually, short of the solar electric propulsion system, which hopefully it will support as well, there's nothing really which is going to get us any further. And and the next biggie technological development going the gateway route is going to be a lander, and and we know how much that will cost. Um, and and so this really is, I, I think, the next ten years are going to be a period of expectation. And I think China will make significant steps. Uh, but I think this particular one, Tingyu 4, I think, um, I think it's even, it's even outfoxed the Chinese, who certainly did not give Tingyu 3 the success expectation that it actually got. And, and so this mission was put together only as a result of the, of the, the tremendous success of the preceding lander, um, even though there were technological failures with the rover. But, the Chinese are doing fixes and they are integrating this. And in a in in a strange cynical way, it's it's a little bit like the Russians who lost the the moon race for humans and rapidly fell back on an automated program of sample return and recovery using robotic systems. In a way, the Chinese know that gosh, they'd love to get big headlines and and the word moon on <laughs> on on the broadsheets and the tabloids really gets readers attention um so they're defaulting to pushing forward with something that they know they can do very well because they're pretty smart guys when it comes to robotic technologies and to software systems and uh, and digital operations and and so they're able to apply technologies from outside the space program into their expectations for trying to push continuously with news-grabbing headlines. It's all political, um, driven by the resources, but the indigenous intellectual capability is certainly there in China, and if it really wanted to give it the gun, which I don't think they do, I think it's part of a long-term protracted program across a very, very, very broad front. Um, This year sees... Um, more peer-reviewed papers in the in the science journals from China than from any other country. Now they exceed America this year with with the number of peer-reviewed papers. So this is what they're aiming for. They want to be right on that top step. But I think getting to the moon while you're 
in my view, you are quite right that that human investigation, but but this has to be much more than just a touch and go. It's got when when we go back, we have really got to do this on the basis of scientific investigation. And my long term hope is that we can do it with the Chinese. Yeah. I mean, it'd be. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the European, I suppose, European and American moon village idea is, if that can get going, it just it just seems everything just seems a long way away. And what's and what's very depressing about that is that when I speak to colleagues and and, and people out who who of course are completely outside of this space bubble, so mm. these are you know they they're not mm. in the space industry at all. Even those that are enthused about space. They will say things. Oh, yeah. Apparently, America are going back to the moon next year. It's like, yeah, it's not with humans though, and it, yeah. they see the headlines, and it's you know, uh, every, yeah. it's back to the moon. And it's like, but it isn't though. <laughs> it isn't mm. back to the moon. Mm. Uh, you know, they're going to be starting to put some systems and testing systems next year mm. if they're mm. lucky. Mm. And now it look, doesn't look as though they're even going to be doing that. So, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <clears throat> I think that's I think that's going to be the thing that that is going to be mm. really damaging to the public mm. perception of space programs in the fact that in their in their peripheral vision they think more is being achieved and when suddenly people keep going back to them and saying no this hasn't been achieved they might think well mm. what the heck's going on <laughs> what mm. the heck's going on out there yeah 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 well it's it's rude to condemn the general public in this way but i think <clears> people are very fickle and and as you say, once they realize that this is very, very long-term stuff, they have actually been fed material from the public relations departments of these organizations right across the board than can be qualified in substance from the agencies that they represent. And I think there will be a sense of... of uh, um, letdown, and, and this could erode support. But... And, and another connection is, is, is of course, this, this expectation on the commercial sector. And, and we've, got, uh, we've got now, this is the year, hopefully, we will see commercial operators start to, to provide crew transport to the ISS, isn't it? With, hmm. with both Boeing and, and SpaceX. Certainly this whole commercial sector is, is arousing expectations in the public, which really I don't think are justified because, as I have repeatedly said tirelessly in the past, perhaps, and listeners have been used to hearing the fact that, that we just need to calm down on this commercial side. It is essential. It is absolutely vital. It is, it, it is the second leg, uh, well, well, the third leg, to make the space program stable. The first really are national space programs that are funded by the taxpayer because those big goals are still not returning an investment to the user that uh, is justified by the money spent by the provider. Um, the second leg really is international cooperation. So you spread the cost and you get a lot of, of, of teams, brilliant people in many countries converging on a common goal. And the third leg is the commercial sector, which is living nicely, thank you, off the profits of satellite launches such as Elon Musk, Elon Musk with, with SpaceX, and hopefully soon Jeff Bezos, because he's starting to take contracts now for, for his satellite launch vehicles, as, as we all know. Um, but, but we just need to understand that, that those commercial operators are never going to be able to just go to Mars or go to the moon unless there's some return, because unless they're making billions and billions a year 
of their commercial launch services, which ain't going to happen because of all the sectors of the space provider community, which is building satellites, ground systems, and launch vehicles. Launch vehicles is the least profitable. Mm. It's building satellites on the ground segment and the ground infrastructure, which is by far the most profitable. And you see this in the shares and the financial results of the companies involved. So there's a very thin thin layer on top of the of what it costs you to be able to make a profit on what you can charge because everything is being beaten down. And there are some big shocks coming as well uh, with regard to the national launch vehicle providers, never mind the commercial mm. providers like Bezos and Musk, um, because, of course, there's huge worries and a big uh-uh moment with Ariane 6, which is failing to attract European government support. And so there have been a lot of internal financial assessments made that the whole thing is going to cost a lot more and be sadly lacking in in turning the revenue that was projected for it when European governments approved Ariane 6. And that big, big story, I'm, I'm looking at that specifically for the April issue of, of, of Spaceflight, he says with his commercial hat on himself. I'd really love to see your spin on that because, yeah, it's something we covered in this week's podcast was that yeah. I'm assuming you're referring yeah. to the French audit yeah, yeah, yeah. of yes, Ariane 6, and, which yeah, wasn't pretty, yeah. was it? But. Yeah, and, and technically as well, you talk, there are an awful lot of, of uh, engineers and rocket scientists in the UK who could have told you this would have happened. Um, and, and that's a story which can get pretty messy which I don't think we want to go into here, uh, <laughs> about about the domination of the French in the European launch vehicle market and how they have actually spiked the guns of much more effective and economically viable systems from, shall we say, other countries. <laughs> <laughs> but but that so so this whole thing, as I say mischievously, you know, is is really um uh, ripe for an I told you so moment from those who had valid engineering and financial arguments against it. But on the commercial side, I think they are vital for sustaining the ISS. Obviously now, hopefully, I'm sure it will work for carrying crew to the station and also for logistically supplying the station and and, and then, then building on that to ramp it up for doing much of the lift uh, to the gateway. And, and I just hope we can sustain that there because if we can... If I think it's money well spent for for national governments to invest in these entrepreneurs because they are proving that they can do the thing that they claim they want the contracts for. And uh, I think a, a lot have fallen by the wayside. So we're now beyond the point where it's it, it's a risk. Now there's demonstrated success in so many areas. But I do see those three areas myself as being we still need old space, the big government commitments for things that can't happen because they don't bring a financial return for anybody to invest in. So it's a great, it used to be said of publishing that the best way to lose a million dollars is to start a publishing house. And um, so it is, I think, <laughs> to, to an extent with, uh, with a lot of these space projects that you can't expect them because they are, they, they are part of that push on technology that, 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 
nations need in order to develop infrastructures that bleed out and eventually return to the economy much more than they cost, but not immediately in the short term as companies and corporations need in order to satisfy their investors. So now people with very, very deep pockets have, 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 have gone right around the outside of the entrepreneurs and the startup investors and, and put their own money in. Um, and, and these companies are replete with examples of where even these billionaires came close to losing everything. And I think Musk is, is, is an example of where the early Falcon, there was one launch left, and if it wasn't a success, that was it. He was going to pack up shop and, and, and do other things elsewhere. But, but, but it was a success, and that just they were just able to hang on to the cliff edge of survival, as it were, and look what resulted from that. So, yes, I think, but, but as far as expectations among the public are concerned, it's going to be a long, long time before all this can knit together to satisfy the expectations. And maybe the PR groups are too effective, and maybe there is too much of a hunger in the general public for inspirational good news things. And people don't mind that coming out of their taxes, I think, quite mm. honestly. If it inspires the young, if it increases the technological base of the country to be able to, to apply into civilian areas things that can improve the quality of life in health care and everything like that, that we do feel beneficial in society as, as a socially aware society, it all feeds back in to put more money back in to do those important things for a for an altruistic society um but it's not going to happen without that that connection between old space and new space and it's it's not an either or because one needs the other and vice versa it, i think it's quite interesting people like elon musk and jeff bezos who made their billions and billions in a certain type of industry in a disruptive industry and obviously yes. elon musk and has disrupted the launch industry yes. a little bit but yes. at the end of the day it's it's a slightly different business isn't it because you can shop around it's like i need yes. to launch this well what's the who can do it cheapest and then yes. <laughs> at the moment it's elon musk but but yeah. his whole business model completely disappears the moment someone else comes along and it's 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 yeah. and i guess that's kind of what's happened to ariane's ariane space and <laughs> with, with well, ariane yes Yes, I think they were a little contemptuous and a little bit sniffy, certainly. Um, not Ariane Spass specifically. I'm not targeting any particular group with, within the overall infrastructure of an independent European launch system, whether it's government agencies, whether it's the semi-privatized operators, whatever it is. There was a certain sniffy attitude to these, these startups and the competitors. Um, sniffy attitudes over launch systems are quite common. I can remember it back in the shuttle era when I can remember back at headquarters, they were literally laughing around the table about, about the Europeans developing an Ariane launch system when surely everything was going to be launched on reusable winged space planes, um, i.e. the shuttle. And, uh, and of course, that, that uh, really fell flat on its face in a desperately tragic way both with a lack of awareness of what it took to provide a launch service for unmanned satellites and large large payloads, um, tragically through that unawareness, and more tragically so, uh, was the loss of Challenger, which completely removed all the commercial payloads from, from the shuttle. But even, even up to the time um, of Challenger, and... Uh, 
in many ways, it's a painful memory for me because I was so embroiled in so much of that. Much of my work in Washington was around that time, um, going all over the world, trying to draw customers for shuttle payloads. And yet, back in Houston, we had astronauts lining up in the corridors in their suits, waiting for time to get in the simulators, because there was not enough infrastructure to support the mission flow that was required to accommodate the launches some of us were going out to try and attract. And so there was a, a huge mismatch between the expectations of how many shuttles were going to fly um, and how many were needed. And it was based on on the big numbers that Congress approved a discount to customers on the price of the shuttle so that they never did pay on any of those of those Hughes satellites, the Hughes 376 series of communication satellites um, for places like Indonesia and Australia and the Canadians and other places. And even India was offered eight as 376s. Um, and this was the great big production flow on the satellite lines from Hughes in California. And there was the shuttle, which was the government system ponderously trying to live up to expectations of mission planners that there would be up to 60 flights of the shuttle a year. And so there was a rush to put all these payloads on it. But that total inability to be able to understand that if only the, the what today would be called the commercial world could be unleashed, that the shuttle wouldn't stand a chance. And so essentially the government edict and, and particularly under the Reagan administration, was that everything would fly and shuttle and everything was to shut down except the very small scout launch vehicles, so the Deltas, the Atlases, Atlas Centaurs, all of those were going to go. And I can remember uh, walking down the production line of the Delta rocket at McDonnell and tapping one of them on the side as we walked along saying, well, that, that's the second to the last. And then came Challenger, the production lines came back in and, and that was the commercialization of the launch vehicle industry when Boeing... And McDonnell Douglas, General Dynamics, took all of their hardware, and we have today what is what became United Launch Alliance. Um, and, and that was the semi-commercialization that ran rings around the, the ponderous government plan. And in a way, today, I see the commercial markets of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk very much like those Boeings and GDs and MacDacs um, running rings around the U.S. government, who was unable to match the nimble, fast-moving opportunities that the expendables could produce. And today, Europe, with its Ariane program, is that great ponderous dinosaur. It cannot move and flex itself fast enough. And it's all about satisfying politicians. It's all about creating diversity. Oh, this country will, will have the monopoly of launch vehicles. That country will have the monopoly of human spaceflight. Another country will have the monopoly on Earth resource monitoring. Um, all of that sounds very fine on cheat sheets where you're laying it out on, on Excel graphs, but the problem is in the reality of the world, you're dealing with markets. And so I fear, by example, from what happened in the shuttle era with the present, and much of this story is either forgotten or is disregarded now. But it was very, very much like it at the time. And there was this back-of-the-neck creeping feeling that the shuttle was going to fall flat on its face because there simply were not the the means being applied to to create this one system to replace everything else. And this is where Europe is looking and mocked initially, laughed at the at the entrepreneurs like, 
Bezos and Musk. And now, who's laughing now, one might say? Hmm. Because, because Europe now is stuck with Ariane 6 and, and the, uh, the same old game, different players, different countries, hmm. different groups, but it's the same old human reactions all over again. Yeah, I mean, they, they started off la- uh, laughing, but... It wasn't. A, it wasn't that. It was quite recently that they were almost angry at Elon Musk for dumping on the market, and, and it was. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, right. it's very yeah. weird. <laughs> very and, weird. And now, and now, technology is chasing the um, the uh, demonstrated successes of uh, reusable core stages, and and Europe quietly is is looking at that all of a sudden when it mocked that that opportunity. It's very, very sad, but we have to turn this around and recognize that, uh, you know, there are deep core reasons why things things are not happening in the way they should. And that feeds right the way through to what we were saying earlier about public perception um, is not matching. It's all, all the reality and the perception of the real world out there is not matching the expectations of the general public. And we could lose a whole audience. All this could go away very, very quickly. And people could have the yeah, yeah, yeah attitude when they hear more about what is expected. Because, unfortunately, we're in that transition where the space program is becoming routine. But we don't want routine. We want excitement. We want stimulation. (laughs) New generations growing up with that wow factor, with eyes wide open. Uh, We want to catch them when their eyes are wide open, when they're very young. And say yes, there are great things that can happen, and I think really it's it's this is the fault of a society that is built on PR hype, the fact that too much is being too efficiently and effectively said about things which will take a lot longer and be a lot calmer and a lot less dramatic than when they do happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's even worse if you're if you're working in science and you. You release a paper that's 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 all about how a chemical has managed to disrupt a certain type of cancer cell in a petri dish, and then by the time yeah. it gets to the newspaper, it's scientists have yeah. found a cure for cancer, yeah. for and cancer, it's kind yeah. of that yeah. it's that same yeah. it's that same yeah. framing, isn't it? That kind of yeah. in actual fact it erodes the enthusiasm of the public because it's yeah. like, oh, you yeah. said you found a f- cure for cancer last year. It's like, no, they didn't. That's just how the yeah. press yeah. span yeah. it, and that's how and that's what you wanted to yeah. buy that's the problem yeah. i guess but. well I, I i think this this awareness as well in those who who handle the discharge of information and and you and i are in are in that area matt um and i think it, it is important to recognize exactly what you say that we have to be very careful in order not to follow that that um expectation curve ourselves and and mm. and this is one of the reasons why i i'm a very avid follower and supporter of your podcast because i think you really consistently try to ground people in the realities while still exposing the exciting and inspirational things that actually do exist but we've as as you have said yourself we've got to get away of thinking of the space program as a product to market as though it's something on the shelf that we have to overhype um, compared to something adjacent to it on the shelf in terms of public expenditure, and and it is, isn't it? It's it, it's very those of us who are involved in disseminating information have to bring in a broader audience, and actually that is something I really wanted to to um, let you know. I'm sure you do know actually, but but our listeners um, that. 
disseminating information through talks and lectures and protracted presentations is something which the British Interplanetary Society has been wrestling with um, for long as it grows its um, interest internationally. Um, to We've got a lot of members, followers in Australia, in America certainly, and they can't all come to London for each individual talk. So one of the great one of the great enabling capabilities now that, that we're trialing at the British Interplanetary Society is to live stream to members um, when emailed a code to access it, the lectures and the talks which are given at headquarters in London, so that not only can people watch the presentation as though they are there, but also can... can uh, Skype in with questions or email or whatever their mode of communication is um, to be able to have questions answered right there by the speaker in the Q and A session at the end. And I think this is this is is a tremendous thing. And I'd like to to raise a flag for the accomplishments and achievements of Alan Marlow, who who stoically over years has come down to headquarters to film these lectures for putting on the BIS members section of the website and now has provided the technology and the equipment for us to be able to live stream directly via a contained YouTube channel which is available to members another good reason to be a member <laughs> of the BIS so that you can actually directly participate as though you were there in what is a very limited capacity room uh, of just 40 people mm. essentially for fire and risk evaluation reasons. We can't cram more people in than that. So so I think this is really great. So so it it's down to it's down to us all, isn't it? Um you and me with regard to speaking to an audience and talking about things and having them comment back is now extending to the talks that, that are being given at at the BIS. And as we proceed through this year with the with the many talks that are being held on various aspects of the Apollo program, then that is it is is a great enabler and hopefully will engage people um with the more with the more detailed and and uh, specific um explanations and descriptions of, of what people are working on and we have a lot of scientists coming into the BIS to give these talks and also those of us who are looking back and uh, reflecting on on the Apollo era, as it is this year. So I wanted to mention that, Matt, and I no, think absolutely. we're all part of a holistic group, aren't we, of trying <laughs> yeah. to get a sensible communication channel out there. Absolutely, and I, I can't I can't recommend enough becoming a member of the British Interplanetary Society just for that uh, video section alone. It's so brilliant to go back on all those lectures over all the years. I mean, there's some absolute corkers in there. And yeah. the fact now that you can you can join in with that live, I think, is brilliant. Yeah. That's really, really good. Yeah, I, yeah. I love things like that. Yeah, well, we we, we like to project what what you are doing on on this podcast, and and as listeners tuning into this at whatever time, you know, um, this, this is this these are the conduits through which we do hope to honestly, genuinely, and and really objectively analyze what is what is happening. So there are platforms arising. You've done a tremendous work in, in raising the profile of direct communication with listeners through these talks. Um and and I think through journals and magazines and books, um 
we we can help to to put that balance correct but i think uh, over and above everything else we do we do have to to do our what whatever we can to sustain this broader awareness that while the 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 real uh, seat gripping tension of landings by humans on other worlds may yet still be a little way away for us to resume that there are hugely exciting things going on out there in the space program and it is actually in all that other stuff that most people will be working in the program and pre-position themselves so that when the call comes to work on these dramatic human spaceflight programs just like in the days of apollo that generation will be there ready to take the call and to stand up and deliver Fantastic. Well, <laughs> I think that's a brilliant place to finish, David. Thanks very much for joining me again. And, well, thank uh, you, Matt. It's it's always a pleasure. And uh, and and indeed, let's let's hope that all those exciting things in 2019 really do come to happen. Yeah. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Well, incredible as always. Thank you, Mr. Baker. Uh, thank you, oh, David Baker. Or uh it's time for space fact of the week what you got for me i have remember we uh celebrated richard gott's birthday a couple of episodes ago possibly oh, last yeah. episode actually uh he has written a book called the cosmic web yeah and uh there's a great quote in there that uh, is good for looking at the size of the universe and here we go, go. If our galaxy were the size of a standard dinner plate, i.e. 10 inches across, the Andromeda galaxy, M31, would be another dinner plate, a little bit bigger, 21 feet away. That gives you, that really does, that really helps me realise just how far away the two galaxies are. So how long does light take to to reach us from Andromeda? 2.5 million years oh goodness Matt! and what was happening on the earth back then we've got proto humans haven't we we haven't we haven't got humans aren't no humans is is at most two hundred thousand years ago exactly so yeah but we've got some form of hominoids any dinosaurs Uh, around then matt no no they're a hundred million years ago right yeah 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 no dinosaurs okay there we go um well that's fantastic i love woolly mammoths Yes, woolly, woolly, woolly mammoths. Yes, woolly M's and saber tooth tiger and well, saber tooth tigers. I'm going to read out some names for you, and I want you to tell me what you think they're like as characters. Uh, what do you think? Okay. What do you think they bring to the world? Of okay. Space. Okay. Here we go. Anthony Peggs. Well, he's an absolute legend. What about Bob Hodges? Well, we've already had his contribute several contributions. What a legend! What about Catherine Carr? Space legend and, and space advocate and, and goes out there, is doing it. She's out in the world doing space stuff. She's crushing it. What about Darren Fuchs? He's an absolute space ledge. John Bernack? Very vocal on Discord. I love him. What about Julio Aprea? I don't, I don't think there is a superlative that we could use where for would Julio. We be, God knows where we would be. <laughs> God yeah. only knows. Um, what about Justin Roberts? I can't begin to express what a legend they are. Can you express anything about Carol Sim? All I can say is that they live in one of the best cities I've ever been to. A legend. 
all these people in far spread parts of the world. What about Kaylee? Space legend. Finally, what do you think about Matt Gilliland? Well, I think that they're one of the most awesome patrons ever. If you want to rejoin this uh, esteemed list of legends, uh, where can people go, Matt? They can go to www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary or to interplanetary.org.uk. Matt, let me ask you this. If I wanted to follow the Interplanetary podcast on Instagram, do we have an account? You bet you Rock bottom dollar we Come and find us. Give us a follow. And uh, we'd love to take your shout outs, your queries, any questions, anything you want us to cover. Get in touch. Let us know and we will stick it on a future show. We definitely will. Matt, what are you up to now? I'm going to go off and wander in the beautiful sunshine on this absolutely glorious Devon day. Well, I think I might do the same. I haven't stepped away from my laptop and it's time to go and look up oh okay yes good good move it's going to be a clear sky tonight so i might do a bit of astrophotography well the moon is showing off at the moment to do it and have a good weekend everybody bye bye spodcats bye keep up the good work see you